depression forced me to accept that I was gay. The depression forced me to accept that I was depressive and somebody who had gone through depression throughout my entire life. And I was somebody who needed to seek and receive treatment for that depression. But more than anything, it showed me that I needed to and deserved to enjoy my life. And that was a big, strange realization. I mean, and it isn't one that I came to in a profound way. It was just a space of, I'm gonna kill myself if I can't find some joy. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Guy Branham. Guy is a comedian, actor, producer, and writer. He previously hosted and created True TV's talk show, The Game Show, was the host of the Pop Rocket podcast, and in 2015, his debut comedy album, Effable, reached number one on the iTunes and Billboard charts. He's also written on hit TV shows like Chelsea Lately, The Mindy Project, A League of Their Own, and is currently a writer on HBO's Emmy-winning series Hacks. Guy is also the co-producer of and an actor in the movie Bros, starring Billy Eichner, which is in theaters now. But success has been a long and difficult road for Guy. For years, he struggled with depression, largely due to having to hide his sexuality, and even after coming out, as he depicts in his memoir, My Life as a Goddess, he found his sexuality to be a hindrance when it came to commercial success and entertainment. My full conversation with Guy Branham right after this quick break. Guy Branham, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. So I want to rewind a little bit in your career. Uh, I want to talk about a time in your life when you had just finished law school and you ultimately decided to pursue a career in comedy and in TV writing. Tell me a little bit about what inspired this decision after working so hard to go into law. I left a career in the law and went to comedy because there was no other path, um, because I couldn't find a way forward in my life unless I found a way of being happy. Law school was, you know, it's, it's a hard experience. It's a trying experience, but a lot of people really thrive there. I was living outside of California for the first time in my life. I came out of the closet, which my parents didn't deal with well. And I was having to figure myself out as an adult, as a sexual being, like as a whole human being for the first time in my life and doing it in a very sort of rigorous and strenuous academic and professional environment. And I fell into a really bad depression and it forced me to realize a lot of things. I mean, the depression came before the coming out, like the depression forced me to accept that I was gay. The depression forced me to accept that I was depressive and somebody who had gone through depression throughout my entire life. And I was somebody who needed to seek and receive treatment for that depression. But more than anything, it showed me that I needed to and deserved to enjoy my life. And that was a big, strange realization. I mean, and it isn't one that I came to in a profound way. It was just a space of... 
I'm going to kill myself if I can't find some joy. And I had to just sort of feel my way around in the dark to find some joy. And the last joy I remembered were the three or four times I had done stand-up my last year as an undergrad. And I felt my way back to that. And, you know, I I didn't think it was going to be a career. I thought it was going to be a hobby. I thought it was going to be something I did alongside the law. But in those first couple of years of stand-up, and I was still working legal jobs, I also came to this realization that I'm not going to be able to really thrive at something the way I want to thrive professionally unless I love what I'm doing. And there are some people who love the law and are able to give all of themselves to it. There are people who don't need to love their job and are able to be a lawyer and have that work out. But I realized I needed to do something that brought me joy because then I would be able to give all of myself to it. And that's how I ended up becoming a comedian. What were the months like after making that transition from law to ultimately comedy and entertainment? Because on one side, you know, one could assume it was this sense of relief because you're actually doing something that you're passionate about. But on the other side, you're taking a big risk going from something that is relatively stable in nature to something that you have no freaking idea how you're going to bring in enough money to live. So what was it like for you? I mean, it was a months-long transition. There was a long period of time there when I was working legal jobs and I was doing stand-up, and it felt really irresponsible that I was focusing more of my time and my creative power to this thing, and I was sort of giving the short shrift to what should have been my professional work that I was laying a foundation for, it felt dumb. It felt truly dumb and risky. And then there came the moment when I got the first writing job about two years into stand-up. A friend of mine who was also a comic recommended me for a writing job at a little cable network she worked at. And it wasn't a good or fancy job. It didn't pay a huge amount of money, but it paid enough. And it seemed impossible. It seemed the idea that I could get this thing that was a validation that would say, it's all right for you to (laughs) believe in yourself in this thing. It seemed impossible. And then it happened. And it is sort of one of the few moments of unmitigated joy in my life of just sort of, you know, it was, it was back at a point in time when you had to receive a phone call at your home and be at your home to get the phone call. And a phone call came and I picked it up and it was the thing I wanted the phone call to be. And it was amazing. And and the thing is, is since then, there have been times um, after I left Chelsea lately, it was very hard for me to find work. And what year was that? That was, um, I left Chelsea lately at the end of 2010 and she was unhappy with that. She communicated to various people she worked with that she didn't think that they should work with me. And it was very hard for me to find work. And and it was a moment of like, do, is this when I reactivate my bar membership? Has this been a nice fun run, but do I have to go back to do this other more practical thing? And my parents who had never really understood me becoming a standup, who were always frustrated by me going into this, There was like one nice moment when my mom made a gesture that indicated she believed in and supported me continuing on this path. And it felt like I needed it, you know? Totally. I want to uh, talk about it in a second, you know, kind of the choices you made to push through 
staying in in the industry after leaving Chelsea lately. But I want to talk about for a second, you came out of the closet when you were 23 years old. And you talked about how, you know, it wasn't the easiest conversation to have with your parents or the way in which they reacted to it. But I want to better understand what was it about that moment in your life that made you feel like it was finally okay to come out? It seriously was. Everything else in my life felt so bad and out of control and joyless. I was like, well, this is a thing I've needed to fix. This is a, this is a thing that has to get done and you haven't done it until now. And so maybe if you do this, it will start the process of everything else being able to come into place. And like, at the time, that seemed real dumb because I did it and it only made things worse. It only made my life worse and more frustrated. And the thing is, is in the medium and long term, it did the job. In the medium and long term, I was right. That it was something that needed to be fixed. But like, in the moment, there were three wheels off the car and I decided to kick the fourth wheel off the car. <laughs> and that's pretty dumb um, because, you know, you also need to have the tools to pick yourself back up. And it was putting myself in a situation where I really was leaving myself kind of prostrate, like kind of in, in a very bad place. I did manage to figure out the skills and tools necessary. I learned to ask for help, you know, which is not something I was, I was raised to do, but I Who learned- Who do you ask for help? Because it sounds like your parents weren't there to provide that help at that time. No, um, you know, my parents, I was, I was raised to think of them as the only people I could go to for help and they gave it or didn't give it when they chose. And so my friends, I, for the first time in my life was like, I, I really need this from you. And also the administration at my school who, you know, they were very Midwestern, very Minnesotan, did not want to talk to me about the specifics of what was going on with me, but were so present for me. And, you know, I remember going into the dean of my law school and explaining what had happened. And and they were so there, so present. You know, I was I needed financial help and they gave me financial help, you know. Um, and then there were people who I didn't ask for help, but who stepped up and helped. You know, um, one of my law professors, Miranda McGowan, who's now at the University of San Diego, she basically stepped up and said, you're not coming to class enough. I know you're going through something right now, and I understand that that is hard, but I'm not going to let you fall all the way into the void. And having those people be there for me, you know, my law school study group, so many people who, you know, my friends from college who were living elsewhere, when I just needed to talk to people, I just said, uh, I need help. And they stepped up for me, and it was... Uh, you know, it, it felt so hard at the time, but it was what got me through it. I mean, from what I understand about your story, there's just so many examples of you being resilient and you pushing through when it was anything but easy. And something else that comes to mind is, from my understanding of your startup career, especially early on in your career, something that you just became acutely aware of was, and you said this specifically in an interview, is that you didn't realize that gayness was going to be an impediment to mainstream success in stand-up. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you? It was so strange because coming out of the closet is what had brought me to 
an expressive career, an artistic career, that kind of thing. And then I started doing stand-up in San Francisco, which had this rich world of queer performance, you know? Like, at that point in time, there was this place called Josie's Juice Joint, which was a comedy and performance space that was, like, you know, primarily for queer acts. And it wasn't until, you know, I got a little bit further down the path that I started to realize there really wasn't anyone like me who had done more than five minutes on Comedy Central, you know? And and there were... The wonderful thing about San Francisco is that all of those people were either in San Francisco or coming through San Francisco all the time. I got to see them. I got to learn from them. But particularly after I moved to Los Angeles, there was not a stand-up manager who wanted to sign me. Why? Until... Uh, <laughs> because where would I go? What are you going to do with this person? There's there's nowhere for them to go. There's no job that they're going to get that's going to move them along this path. Those people are trying to make another Adam Sandler that they can make money from. They're trying to make another Tiffany Haddish. But at that point in time, we didn't know what Tiffany Haddish could happen. You know, at that point in time, we didn't know that there could be an Ali Wong. And so truly, it was not until... 2012 or 2013, like well after I had been making decent money in my career for for some period of time, when I went to a stand-up manager and said, hey, will you represent me? And then it was several years after that before someone came to me who was a good, respectable stand-up manager and was like, I'm interested in representing you. And that's hard because... Wouldn't it be nice to have somebody who believed in you? Wouldn't it be nice to have somebody who saw a path for you, who had institutional knowledge, who could help you? There was a lot of difficulty that came with having to be the the person imagining my career forward. But then there were also a huge number of skills that you get from that. It forces you to be creative and be certain. But the thing is, is like, it's hard to always have to believe in yourself. I'm in awe of hearing Guy's resilience and tenacity. Because of all of the uphill battles he's had to fight both professionally and personally since coming out, it is inspiring to see him continue to press forward and create. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we will hear Guy's well-developed strategies for navigating professional setbacks, as well as the story that reminds Guy to keep going even when he feels like giving up. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And we're back. Before the break, we heard about what drove Guy's decision to pursue a career in comedy, as well as the roadblocks that he has encountered as an out gay man in entertainment. And even though Guy seems to face hurdle after hurdle in the industry, he always continues to push through. And I wanted to know how he managed to do so, even with a frustrating amount of stereotyping and rejection. 
I mean, this the right amount of anger is a really <laughs> hard thing to try to achieve because along the way, you're also sort of distracted by the anger. And there are moments when the frustration and the anger can become overwhelming. Um, but, you know, it, it took a lot of certainty that I was good at what I did. And it took a, a fair amount of anger and insistent uh, belief that I could prove these people wrong. And it took a certain amount of selling out. I would not have been able to make it through my career under the terms that were possible if I had not spent significant amounts of my life selling out my skills to other people to try to create financial safety for myself mm -hmm. while I contribute to try to promote my brand and what I do. And the thing is, is along the way, I remember... Years ago, I was watching The Daily Show, and Michael Patrick King, the guy who created Sex in the City and Two Broke Girls, he was on and he talked about a stand-up gig that he had gone on at the beginning of his career with Jon Stewart. And I had this moment of like, wait, Michael Patrick King was a stand-up? Why didn't I ever get to see his stand-up? And you realize like, oh, this industry said, you're a gay guy. Your job is to go write TV shows about ladies. And for most of my career, this industry was like, your job is to go write TV shows about ladies. And so I wrote TV shows about ladies, but I also always did my thing with part of who I am. And like, I, I always kept some of my skills and some of my time for me. And that was an important way of making it through. You mentioned that the industry is different today than when you're coming up. How different is it? And what do you think acted as the tailwind for, for that change? It is less different than I would like it to be. I mean, yeah. the past weekend was hard and rough because uh, the movie that I'm in, Bros, got stellar reviews. It got stellar support from a studio, which, you know, is not something that happened before. And then people did not show up the way that we wanted them to, which is, yeah. you know, a, a hard moment of like, is it six more years of winter for gay people in movies? Is it 10 more years? Who knows? But, you know, things have really changed. Like, the capacity to see and understand potential from queer people, from trans people, the industry has woken up to that. Like, there are more women, there are more people of color, there are more queer people who are representatives, who are agents and managers. But in all of this, they are young. They are lower ranking. They are less important. And there is a way that the industry identifies that there are people of color with potential, there are queer people with potential, but that those people are young. And they don't want to think about the people who had half a career of being frustrated before the world got better. And that can be really hard yeah. when the notion is, yes, we would like uh, a gay person. We would like a skinny little adorable gay boy in a gold suit to play a secretary. And that's not what I'm for. But, you know, people have... You're always going to deal with people's restricted ideas of what's possible. And if I were somebody who was only working when I lined up with somebody else's idea of what I should be doing, that would be really hard. The upside is I've always had to build my own career. And so this is a much better place to be building my career than 2006 was. I feel like it's actually such a, a timely point to just be talking about what it's like to be navigating a non-perfect situation, which is, you, you know, you just mentioned the opening weekend for bros, obviously 
it didn't perform in the box office as you would have hoped, as any of you would have hoped. And I can appreciate how challenging that may be as a function of one, putting so much time into this production, but also what it stands for. Uh, you know, a story that I've never really seen told in movies that's just so important for pushing entertainment forward. When you just sit with this challenge, how do you push through it? How do you, to the point you made before about finding the right balance of anger, how do you think through it? It's hard because the first place that you want to go is, and so in some ways, the safest place is that fear that there's not a space for you. Like just going back to, they were right. We shouldn't have tried to do this. Like there are so many people on Twitter or in publications who are just saying they shouldn't have tried to do this. Gay people should know that they are a niche thing and that they don't get to have a nationwide release. And, you know, I have a good manager now, a really wonderful straight guy who understands. He actually represents me and Joel Kim Booster and Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall. And I think that there is a reason that, um, you know, I, like, I think he has had to develop uh, important skills for dealing with, with gay men in this industry. But I, like, got whiny to him and was just like, it, it makes me fear that the underlying premise of my career is false. And he was just like, but you gotta keep trying. And that's the thing is that like, what else am I doing with my life? Yeah. You know, that like, this is what I'm doing. And it's a setback, but it's not like I've never had setbacks before. And you want to believe that you can get to the promised land, but it, it takes a long time. And not everybody, you know, I always fear I'm going to be, you know, Moses who got to see the promised land, but never enter. And maybe that will be the case, but also I also spend a lot of time haranguing and railing at the younger queer comics about how much they owe me. It's important to tell them that. Um, and also, like, it's fun. Like, yeah. it, you know, it, it's fun and nothing's perfect and everything is a compromise and a struggle. And it's also like, there's this big, glossy, wonderful like very funny comedy that just came out that like people are going to get to enjoy for years to come. Like th that's what matters. What matters is we got to make it. You know, I, I think that Hollywood narratives, particularly Hollywood narratives about civil rights uh, are these very sort of pat stories about and then Emma Stone was nice, and then Viola Davis's life was fixed, and then there was no racism in America ever again. And that is not at all how things work. Yeah. And, you know, you want to have that moment that feels like a Hollywood ending, but that's not what life is. And so, you know, this is frustrating, but, like, I got seven other irons in the fire. Like, oh, last year, I had a pilot script at NBC, and it was something I was writing and it was something for me to star in and it was this amazing opportunity and I really loved it and I thought the script was really funny and then NBC wasn't able to make it and it like disappointed me and then I was like well the answer is I put three more irons in the fire I just start three other things and sometimes it is hard or overwhelming you know spinning that many plates but the wonderful thing is, is if a plate crashes you have other plates, you yeah. know? And it's a better option than just putting down the plates and just doing nothing. 
what else would I do? Yeah. You know, truly, what else would I do? This is, I like the work that I do. It's very fun. And I think to, to that point, you know, it's not at all the same, but it's something I think about a lot, even with, just take this podcast as an example. I think this podcast should have a 5X bigger audience than it does. It's mm-hmm. a podcast about the intersection of mental health and career, a topic I think that tens of millions of people really want to or should care about. At the end of the day, it is not as big as I would like it to be right now. But one, that creates anger for me, like, why the fuck is this not bigger? Like, mm-hmm. what are what am I doing wrong? It's always, it starts with, what am I doing wrong? Then it's like, what can we be doing better? But then, you know, the part that kind of gives me hope to keep creating great content around this and having amazing guests like you is, at the end of the day, even if it's not nearly as big as I'd like it to be, but there are a group of people who, for the first time in their life, feel heard and seen and feel belonging that they've never felt before, you know, that is a pretty damn good consolation prize. Being able to be proud of your product is the most important thing. And, you know, with the way my life goes, like, I occasionally have to work on things that I'm not the most enthusiastic about. But then, you know, I have those things like my book or whatever, where I'm just like, I'm so glad that I made that. And it wasn't the biggest thing in the world, as you're saying. Like, there are always forces that are working against you. You are not the Duchess of Sussex. You do not have the resources of some of these big distributors to advertise and make people aware of what you do. You know, there's forces stacked against you, but you control what you can, you know? And also, like, there's something so nice about just getting to be proud of something. Guy has a lot of inspiring perspectives that have helped him continue to push forward in his career, even when things felt impossible. But one in particular that I love, that he speaks about in his interviews often, is the story of the Greek goddess Leto. So my book is called My Life as a Goddess, um, a memoir through unpopular culture. And the idea of my life as a goddess came back to the fact that there was a story I would very frequently tell to my friends. And the story is... um, it's in Ovid's Metamorphoses. It's Leto, the goddess, the Titaness, who was the mother of Apollo and Artemis, the sun and the moon. Um, she got impregnated by Zeus, and she was wandering the, the earth, could not find a home because she had been cursed by Zeus's wife. And she came to a pond to get some water because it was hot and it was terrible. And the people at the pond started making fun of her for being an unwed mother. And they humiliated her and they like stomped in the water so that it became muddy. And then she started to walk away and like just sad and, you know, feeling lost. But she couldn't, she couldn't even get some water. And then she remembered she was a goddess. And in the little version of it, it was this sort of like version of mythological tales for kids. And the phrasing was, and then she remembered she was a goddess. And it was the most striking thing I had ever read as a seven-year-old because I didn't realize you could forget you were a goddess. And then Leto turns around and she turns all of the people, the Lycian peasants around the pond, into frogs. And that has sort of been one of the things that has always stuck with me is like, Those moments when I remember I'm a goddess and I use the powers that I have to transform my world. And like, it hasn't always been good. I mean, so many times it's been full of rage and I've lashed out and done things that I wasn't proud of, but I am still proud that I used the power that I had. And I feel like 
I always try to tell the people around me to remember that they are a goddess and remember that they have powers that they can use and that the world does not expect. And I wrote that book and I also forget it all the time. Like I forget it all the time. And yep. it's, it's been really funny the times when I was in that place and saw a copy of my book hanging around my house and was like, guy, like <laughs> think about your own story. It's such a good story. And I think while it, of course, was not easy at times, maybe you didn't do it perfectly at times. I feel like you are the perfect embodiment of that story in the sense that like, you know, you, you've you just taken so many curveballs and gut punches throughout your career. And at least my listening of just this whole conversation is, you know, you didn't feel sorry for yourself. Yes, you felt anger, but you've just found ways to keep pushing I through. definitely felt sorry for myself. <laughs> I spent a lot of time feeling sorry for myself, but then you have to do something. Yeah, totally. What's next for you? But what are you excited about in the future? Um, right now, I'm uh, a co-executive producer on Hacks on HBO, and I'm really proud of getting to be part of that. And then I have a couple of scripts in development, and I hope that one of those goes, and I get to make a show of my own. And, oh, I like I have a TV show that I acted on called Platonic that's coming out next year. It was directed by the guy who directed Bros. Seth Rogen is in it, Rose Byrne. And so... There's all of those things that I can tell you about and make sense to you. And then there are other little things that are just for me yeah. that are silly to be working on, but I'm excited to be working on. And at least one of them will turn into something real. Oh, and then the other thing, I like this has been announced, but like I wrote a chapter in my book about a movie that I loved. And then the people with the rights to that movie came to me and we're like, do you want to write an adaptation of it? And so I have that script and I'm trying to find, uh, we're trying to find a director for it. But it's just like, even just the fact that I got to write the script, it will make me very sad if it doesn't get made. But like, even the fact that I got to write my version of Babette's Feast, um, you know, thrills me greatly. You've got a lot of irons in the fire. Well, and also you don't get to do stuff like that just by staying a lawyer. That's for sure. And by the way, if you haven't seen Bros yet, go see Bros. Go see Bros. That's really good. Guy Branham, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. Guy Branham's determination is something you have to have in a harsh and competitive industry like entertainment. And I think his takeaways can help anyone succeed in any other cutthroat industry. Be passionate about what you're doing. Know when to make compromises or quote unquote sell out when you need to. Keep many irons in the fire. And above all, have a rock solid, unwavering belief in yourself. Now, Imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We want to make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Vallabhaneni and Makila Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. 
Greg Jacobs is our video producer, and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by The Mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler.